Chia, chia, chia. It's your boy Big L, man, here with another episode of the Page Turners Book Study, Book Club, Book Walkthrough, Books This, Books That, Books Here, Books There, Books Everywhere. You have joined us for episode four, man. Before I even dig into tonight's text, Black Theology and Black Power by the Great Late. Dr. James H. Cone. Again, I want to give several shout outs, man, to people who are just being phenomenal in their support, man. Sharing the podcast, uh, leaving comments and criticisms and critiques. Bring all of those to the table, man, because listen, I am going to do books that I enjoy, but also that enlighten everyone. This book has been tremendous already, and we are just in chapter one. I am really looking forward to digging in. Chapter two brings on some amazing uh, information. Uh, But chapter one is laying the foundation, man, breaking down what black power is and isn't. Chapter one is titled toward a constructive definition of black power. So in episode three, man, we spent a couple minutes digging in and laying the foundation of what black power is and isn't. I spoke uh, for a few moments, man, on how the similarities between woke and black power, uh, the symbolism between the two, the importance of the two. So if you actually missed that, man, Listen, check out episode three as we continue to lay the foundation for this man. Again, it is your boy, the host of the Page Turners Book Club, uh, Elgin Bailey, also known as Big L, also known as Mr. Catch-22. We are going to continue to dig into the text, man, Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cone. Forgive me, man, if my voice seems a little crackly. Uh, I have a little itch, a little little something going on, man, in my throat. I had a little cough the past day or so. Uh, it's this doggone weather. For one moment, it is 78. The next minute is 98. Uh, so just keep your boy lifted up in prayer, man. And let's dig into the text. Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cone. It is in this light that the slogan Freedom Now ought to be interpreted. Like Camus' phrase, all or nothing, Freedom Now means that the slave is willing to risk death because he considers these rights more important than himself. Therefore, he is acting in the name of certain values which he considers are common to himself and to all men. That is what Henry Highland Garnett had in mind when he said, He would rather die free men than live to be slaves. This is what black power means. A further clarification of the meaning of black power may be found in Paul Tulloch's analysis of the courage to be, which is the ethical act in which man affirms his being in spite of those elements of his existence, which conflict with his essential self-affirmation. Sorry, my apologies. Black power then 
is a humanizing force because it is the black man's attempt to affirm his being, his attempt to be recognized as thou in spite of the other. The white power which dehumanizes him, the structure of white society attempts to make black being into non-being or nothingness. In existential philosophy, non-being is usually identified as that which threatens being. It is that ever-present possibility of the inability to affirm one's existence. The courage to be, then, is the courage to affirm one's being by striking out at the dehumanizing forces which threaten being. And as Tulik goes on to say, he who is not capable of a power of self-affirmation in spite of the anxiety of non-being is forced into a weak, reduced self-affirmation. The rebellion in the cities, far from being an expression of the inhumanity of blacks, is an affirmation of their being despite the ever-present possibility of death. For the black man to accept the white man's appeal to wait or to be orderly is to affirm something which is less than essential being. The black man prefers to die rather than surrender to some other value. The cry for death is, Rollo May has noted, the most natural form of distinctly human behavior. In fact, many existentialists point out the physical life itself is not fully satisfying and meaningful until one can consciously choose another value which he holds more dear than life itself. To be human is to find something worth dying for. When a black man rebels at the risk of death, he forces white society to look at him, to recognize him, to take his being into account, to admit that he is, and in a structure that regulates behavior, recognition by the other is indispensable to one's being. As Franz Fanon says, man is human only to the extent to which he tries to impose his existence on another in order to be recognized by him. And he who is reluctant to recognize me opposes me. In a savage struggle, I am willing to accept convulsions of death, invincible dissolutions, but also the possibility of the impossibility. Black power, in short, is an attitude, an inward affirmation of the essential worth of blackness. It means that the black man will not be poisoned by the stereotypes that others have on him, but will affirm from the depth of his soul, get used to me. I'm not getting used to anyone. If the white man challenges my humanity, I will impose my whole weight as a man on his life and show him that I am not that show good eating that he persists in imagining. This is the black power. The power of the black man to say yes to his own black being and to make the other accept or be perceived, prepared for struggle. I find myself suddenly in the world and I recognize that I have one right alone, that of demanding human behavior from the other, one duty alone, that of not renouncing my freedom through my choices. Before one can really understand the mood of black power, it is necessary to describe a prior mood of the black man in a white society. When he first awakens to his place in America and feels sharply the absolute contradiction between what is and what ought to be, or recognize the inconsistencies between his view of himself as a man 
in America's description of him as a thing. His immediate reaction is a feeling of absurdity. The absurd is basically that which man recognizes us the disparity between what he hopes for, what he seems in fact to be. He yearns for more measure of happiness in an orderly, a rational, and reasonably predictable world when he finds misery and disorderly. In an irrational and unpredictable world, he is oppressed by the absurdity of the disparity between the universe as he wishes it to be and as he sees it. This is what the black man feels in a white man world. There is no place in America where a black man can go for escape. In every section of the country, there is still the feeling expressed by Langston Hughes. I swear to the Lord, I still can't see why democracy means everybody but me. In this passage, man, he says here, that's something that I think it brought another thought to my mind that I want to expound on a little bit. When he first awakens to his place in America and feels sharply the absolute contradiction between what is and what ought to be, or recognizes the inconsistency between his view of himself as a man and America's description of him as a thing. That awakening process, and of course we know that's where the term woke is is birthed from, but that awakening process, man, while we are are, are having this discussion, man, I want you to just kind of, as you're listening, man, and maybe after the podcast is over, sit back and think about what was the, the, the thing that woke you up? What was the thing that got your attention? The thing that, that, that had you say what is and what ought to be or recognizes the inconsistencies between his view and how America views you? What was it that got your attention? What was the, that, that thing? Because I believe that everyone has what, what I like to call that Negro wake up call. That, 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 that call, that thing that takes place, that gets your attention, that draws you in, that, that, that has you thinking, damn, something is not right. And you begin, or, or should I say, you should begin to search for answers to find out why things are the way they are. What was it for you? Let me tell you what it was for me. The murder of my brother, my older brother, Chad, by the Coatesville Police Department uh, was the seed, was the seed in, in me, the planet that was planted in me that showed that something was off kilter, man. Something was, something was not right. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time at the moment giving a whole bunch of backstory about my brother, maybe in the future. Uh, discussion, I'll give more insight. But that was where the seed was planted. White cops kill black men. But I think what assisted in the bloom and the blossoming of or that, that actually pulled me out of my slumber completely was Trayvon. Trayvon Martin being murdered by George Zimmerman. George Zimmerman subsequently being acquitted of all charges. 
was the wake-up call for your boy. And I think that was the wake-up call for many of us that we got on our search to find out what the hell is going on that allows this sort of injustice to permeate across the land? What is it? And Trayvon was it for me, man. What was it for you? I'm curious. I, I, I love to hear your thoughts, man. Back to the text. I can remember reading as a child the Declaration of Independence with a sense of identity with all men and with a sense of pride. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with their certain unalienable rights, that among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But I also read in the Dred Scott decision, not with pride or identity, but with a feeling of inexplicably absurdity that blacks are not human. But it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. For if the language as understood in that day would embrace them, the conduct of the distinguished men who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted. And instead of the sympathy of mankind, it would have deserved and received universal rebuke and repropriation. <laughs> but it is too clear for dispute, man, that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included in that Declaration of Independence. Yet, time and time again, we try to force ourselves into a place that was not created for us. We, we try to force our way into it. And it's just, it hasn't worked for us, man. We have to begin to do things different. And I think the first step in doing something different is examining what has already been done. Back to the text. Thus the black man had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. But many whites will reply, the Negro is no longer bought and sold as shadow. We changed his status after the Civil War. Now he is free. Whatever may have been the motives of Abraham Lincoln and other white Americans for launching the war, it certainly was not on the behalf of black people. Lincoln was clear on this. Now, I know many of y'all argue and wrestle with this time and time again, man. Excuse me, I got a cough. <clears throat> My apologies. But I, you've heard people wrestle with this, man. I've heard people wrestle with it. I've heard people want to give Lincoln all types of praise and thanks for freeing the slaves. But here's what Lincoln says. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Let me read that one more time. This is Lincoln's own words. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union. His focus, his desire, his object 
his his want to was to save the union save the union it is not either to save or to destroy slavery if i could save the union without freeing any slave i would do it if i could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone i would do also that If that quotation still leaves his motives unclear, here's another one which should remove all doubts regarding his thoughts about black people. If that first one ain't get you, the second one will. Here's Abraham Lincoln again. I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the black and white races that I am not ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between white and black races, which I believe will forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, and as much as any other man am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. All y'all who want to raise the flag for Lincoln, man, and try to give this dude all these props. My man was clear. He had no desire to give blacks social or political equality, neither social nor political equality. Back to the text. And certainly the history of the black-white relations in this country from civil war to the present unmistakably shows that as a people, America has never intended for blacks to be free. To this day, in the eyes of most white Americans, the black man remains subhuman. And we see that currently, man. We see it currently, that same perspective from so many white people. Yet Americans continue to talk about brotherhood and equality. They say that this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. They sing, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, but they do not mean blacks. This is the black man's paradox, the absurdity of living in a world with no rights which the white man is bound to respect. It seems that white historians and political scientists have attempted perhaps subconsciously to camouflage the inhumanity of whites toward blacks, but the evidence is clear for those who care to examine it. All aspects of this society have participated in the act of enslaving blacks extinguishing Indians and annihilating all who question white society's right to decide who is human, all aspects of this society. I should point out here that most existentialists do not say that man is absurd or the world is absurd. Rather, the absurdity arises that man confronts the world and looks for meaning. The same is true in regard to my analysis of the black man in white society. It is not that the black man is absurd or that white society as such is absurd. 
absurdity arises as a black man seeks to understand his place in the white world. The black man does not view himself as absurd. He views himself as human. But as he meets the white world and its values, he is confronted with an almighty no and is defined as a thing. This produces the absurdity. The critical question then for the black man is, how should I respond to a world which defines me as a non-person? How should I respond to a world which defines me as a non-person? How do you respond to that, fam? How do you respond to that question? How do you respond? Not only how do you respond, but how do you teach that to your children? How do you teach them that? How should I respond to a world which defines me as a non-person? Back to the text. This is a person that he is a person is beyond question, not debatable. But when he attempts to relate as a person, the world demands that he is respond as a thing. In this existential absurdity, what should he do? Should he respond as he knows himself to be or as, a, or as the world defines him? The response to this feeling of absurdity is determined by a man's ontological perspective. If one believes that this world is the extent of reality, he will either despair or rebel. According to Camus' The Myth of Syphus, suicide is the ultimate act of despair. Rebellion epitomizes in the person of Dr. Bernard Roeks in The Plague. Despite the overwhelming odds, Roeks fights against things as they are. If perchance a man believes in God and views his world as merely a pilgrimage to another world, he is likely to regard suffering as a necessity for entrance to the next world. Unfortunately, Christianity has more often than not responded to evil in this manner. <laughs> From this standpoint, the response of black power is like Camus's view of the rebel one who embraces black power does not despair and takes suicide as an out, nor does he appeal to another world in order to relieve the pains of this world. Rather, he fights back with the whole of his being. Black power believes that blacks are not really human beings in white eyes, that they never have been, never will be, until blacks recognize the unsavory behavior of whites for what it is. Once this recognition takes place, they can make whites see them as humans. The man of black power will not rest until the oppressor recognizes him for what he is, man. He further knows that in this campaign for human dignity, freedom is not a gift, but a right worth dying for. He killing it. He killing it. Man, he's killing it. And I actually want to stop right here. Uh, because this next section, man, is crucial and one of the chief arguments that people propose against black power. But this text, man, it's crucial. And he's laying the foundation, man. He's laying the foundation for the theology that is going to be the rest of the text. 
But in order for us to get to the theology, we have to have a practical understanding of what black power is and isn't. And understand the importance of black power. And that black power that we can define it now today is black self-respect. Black self-respect, black accountability, black responsibility, not seeking validation handouts from the dominant white society, but collectively standing upon principles and of self. That doesn't mean that we take a complete separatist form of action from whites, but I believe that we should be maximizing our segregation. We should be maximizing segregation because don't don't get it twisted, man. Segregation legally, quote unquote, may be uh, illegal, but segregation today still is very much a part of the American climate. Our neighborhoods are segregated. Our schools are segregated. Whether it be a a self-segregation, because honestly, I don't know if it's the best idea to always be in the presence of white people. I tell you what, it's it's not a good idea to, to... find yourself in situations with them where alcohol is is being drank or used because strange things happen to people when they begin to drink alcohol. Things begin to be said. People become a little more comfortable. There has to be a level of wisdom taking place. But every time we seem to turn around, man, it seems that there's some incident. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth, too, man. Be mindful of this narrative that's being put out there. There's a reason why these articles and these, you know, these, these, these videos are being put out consistently in, you know, on social media in regards to, you know, permit patty and all this other type of stuff. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Now you got to be able to think critically and say, what is the objective here? What are they trying to get us to see? Because nine times out of ten, the media group or people who are putting those out, those videos, things don't have a black perspective, don't have black ownership. We just gotta be mindful of those things, man. Gotta be real mindful. And this this particular part tonight, man was real heavy with with, with text. And it's important. Remember, we're laying the foundation for this, man. And I thank you guys, bro, for tuning in and listening to another episode of the Page Turner's Book Study, man. We're trying to build. Tonight, we continued our book study, Black Theology and Black Power with Dr. James H. Cone. I'm consistently, man, going to try to make sure this podcast is no more than 30 minutes. It may be times where it go a little longer, but I'm always going to try to make it 30 minutes, man, uh, because your time is valuable, and I don't want to abuse it. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Again, 
please make sure that you comment, man. If you have questions, criticisms, whatever, hit your boy up. Let's discuss it. And more importantly, please, please share this information. We're walking through Black Theology and Black Power by Dr. James H. Cohn, the father of Black Liberation Theology. This has been episode number four. Until next time, fam. We out.